I have a question for you. Have you ever tried to read your Bible through in a year? I know that, that's one of the more common New Year's resolutions that people have, especially among Christians, is this year I'm going to set out and I'm going to try to read my Bible all the way through this year. And to be honest with you, if, if you've ever tried it, you know it's a very daunting task, it feels like. I mean, it, it's a very thick book. There's a lot in there to read. Um, I have personally got through it in terms of doing a yearly Bible reading cover to cover twice. Now, there's a lot of other times I've started it at the first of the year, and then I get behind, and then you, it's like, okay, I got a couple weeks to catch up, and now I got a month to catch up, and you eventually just get so far behind that you get discouraged. You're like, I'll try it again next year. I'll go study something else for this year, and then next year I'm going to try again. So it can be pretty tough to do. I've started it this year, except there, there's a couple things I'm doing differently this year that I've never really done before. And um, first thing is I'm looking at it as if I don't get through it in 12 months, it's okay. If it takes me 13 months, if it takes me 14 months, I'm going to be okay with it. Because at the end of the day, you're still reading your Bible, correct? And does God say you have to read it in a 12-month period? No. But that also keeps you from getting discouraged if you get behind. And it's good because right now I'm about a month and a half behind to get it through in a year. So I'm doing good, though. So if, if we get it done. But there's another thing that I'm going to do differently this year, and I've been trying to, and I'm not sticking to it perfectly, but it's helping some. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Wes McAdams. He's a preacher um, at the McDermott Road Church of Christ down in Texas, and he presented a different kind of Bible reading plan. And if, if you've never heard of him, he does the blog that's uh, called Radically Christian. And so some of you may have read some of his blog posts from there. But traditionally, when we try to read the Bible through in a year, we will read maybe three to four chapters a day. And it may be something that starts in Genesis and just goes straight through all the way to Revelation. Maybe you do one of those plans that might have some from the Old Testament and some from the New Testament and some from Psalms all in a single day. You may do a chronological one. I know that Randy's used that in the past here when he puts the daily Bible reading in the bulletin. And, and that's what I've always done in the past. But, but Wes presented a different idea and a, a way to approach it is instead of just reading three to four chapters a day, what he recommended and what he said he was going to try this year for the first time is to sit and read an entire book of the Bible in one sitting. That sounds like a lot. But when you think about it, there, there's a lot of the, especially the New Testament books, they're not really very long. I mean, some of them you can read in probably five to ten minutes. But then you look at books like Genesis. It's 50 chapters long. It seems like how in the world are you going to sit and read that all at one time? I mean, who has that much time on their hands? But even Genesis, I mean, with it being one of the longer books of the Bible, besides Psalms, obviously, and Psalms is, I think, the one he said he wasn't going to try to do that in one sitting because that's, I mean, he'd read for like 40 hours straight probably. But in Genesis, if you take the average reading speed that, that most humans have, you could read the entire book of Genesis in about three and a half hours. And that may sound like a lot, but if you've got a Saturday and it's pouring the rain, you can't get outside and work in your yard, you just grab a cup of coffee or something and a blanket and sit in a recliner, you'd be surprised how much you can actually get read. And if you think about it too, if we sit down to read a novel, some type of secular book, and let's say that book is 365 pages long, are we going to read one page a day for an entire year? I mean, who reads a book like that? By the time you get through the first month and you get to the end of the first chapter, you forgot what happened at the beginning of the chapter. I mean, it's not really logical to read things that way. 
And so to, to see the, the whole picture of what's going on in a book and to make sure that we don't miss the theme, really, of what, of what the Holy Spirit was trying to get across through the inspired written word is read it all at one time. Read an entire book in one sitting. And so I've tried to start doing that this year. And even if you don't want to read something like all of Genesis all at one time, okay, split it up into three days or something and read, read all of it within three days. So you're talking an hour a day. Okay, skip a TV show one night and sit and read your Bible. I mean, that's a pretty good investment for the night. I think everybody would agree. And so in terms of those real benefits that we get from it, in terms of being able to see everything that really goes on from a, a theme standpoint in a book, there's something I noticed the other day that I want us to look at uh, this evening together. Turn with me over to Numbers chapter 7. So as I was reading through Numbers, and, and this is one of the benefits, like I said, you get from it is you don't forget what happened in previous chapters that you've read um, maybe a week ago, is when you start piecing all these things together. And while you're turning to that Numbers chapter 7, I'll give you a good example too of, of one of the themes that maybe you, we miss sometimes. If we're just reading little pit, uh, pieces and bits of it at a time, what do you think of when you think of the book of Leviticus? Rules upon rules upon rules and sacrifices and offerings. And I mean, if, if something's going to kill your daily Bible reading through the year, typically it's the book of Leviticus. Because you get through Genesis, you get through Exodus, they're kind of like, they're, they're formatted like a story, but then you get to Leviticus and it's like, ugh. How in the world am I going to remember all this? I mean, it kind of makes us glad sometimes that we didn't live under the old law, right? But when you read the entire book all at once, you, you step back and you see this theme. What God's really doing is he wants so bad to live among his children of Israel. He wants to be with them in the tabernacle. But because of his nature, he can't be around sin and uncleanliness. And so all these rules that they have, all the laws that they have about certain foods they're not allowed to eat, what you're supposed to do when you have leprosy, all these sacrifices to, to cover up the uncleanness of the sin that they had was all because of God's love that he wanted so bad to be among them. And so in order for that to happen, there's all these things they had to do. Otherwise, his nature wouldn't allow him to be there. So again, that's just an example of a thing that you can say. But Numbers chapter 7... Hopefully you're there by now. Number seven. Let's read the first nine verses together. It says, Now it came to pass, when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, the, he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. Okay, so the tabernacle that all the, the dimensions, I know Randy's gone over before, um, they're in the adult class here at Pippin. All of that is now finished, and they've got the thing built. It's done. They're getting ready to start actually using it the way God had intended it. So verse 2 says, Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's houses, who were the leaders of the tribes, and over those who were numbered, made an offering. So the leaders of the different tribes, the 12 tribes, bring an offering. And they brought their offering before the Lord. And this is what it was. Six covered carts and 12 oxen. There was a cart for every two of the leaders, and for each one an ox, and they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these from them, that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall give them to the Levites, to every man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service, under the authority of Ithamar the son of Aaron the priest. Listen to this. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulders. And so, so what? 
I mean, is, is this not just part of this rule after rule and detail after detail of all the things going on? Well, again, I think we miss sometimes the point of what's really happened right here. So the first thing is, who are these three families? So it talks about the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari and the sons of Kohath. Well, if you go back to Numbers chapter 3, you find that these three men, they are the sons of Levi. So when you talk about the tribe of Levi, that they're going to run the, the tabernacle. They're the, they're the ones, the Levites, that are actually going to take care of doing the offerings and everything. It's these three guys' families. It's all of their children, their grandchildren, their ancestors are going to be the one carrying out the work of the tabernacle. And that means the day-to-day operations of it. It means when it needs to be physically picked up and moved to another location, they're the ones, their families are going to be the ones moving it. And so now when you think of, okay, they're getting these carts, you can understand why these carts and oxen would be very beneficial to them, right? I mean, not only do they have to transport animals for sacrifices, but the physical pieces of the tabernacle have to get moved, okay? So if you go back to Numbers chapter 4, you find out what these assignments to each of these families are. And they weren't just, okay, go find something that needs to be done and do it. Just if you see something laying around, go take care of it. Now, each one of these families had certain things assigned to them. And so these carts that were handed out were to be used for those purposes. What we want to get across here is God was providing for them what they needed. God's provision for the the tribe of Levi that was going to be taking care of the the tabernacle, it was sufficient. There was sufficiency built in everything that they were doing. But you may be thinking, well, wait, didn't we read in verse 9, to the sons of Kohath he gave none. They didn't get a cart. They didn't get any oxen. But if you go back and read Numbers 4, you know the things that they were required to do? Their job was anytime the tabernacle was moved is they were the ones physically transporting what we've always known as the the furniture pieces, I guess, in the tabernacle. And so you have the Ark of the Testimony that had to be moved. You had the table of showbread. You had the the, uh, lampstand. You had the altar itself and even the ashes from the altar. They weren't just dumped out. They were transported with the tabernacle. But do you remember the one thing that was unique about all those pieces? You put poles in the sides of them and you carry them. They didn't need carts and oxen to move this stuff. Their job was to put these things on their shoulders and walk with them. Now you remember when David came along and they started moving the ark, that got them in a lot of trouble because they stuck the ark on the back of an oxen and a guy ended up losing his life because of that. All right? They were to physically carry this stuff. So everything God did for them was sufficient. All right? Jump over to Numbers chapter 16. And I promise you I'm getting to a point with this, so just bear with me. Numbers chapter 16, what we have now is we have this faction that has kind of risen up within the children of Israel. And this faction, they're they're not all from the tribe of Levi. They're from, from a couple different tribes. But there's around 250 renowned leaders, it says, um, that has risen up. But the problem is, is they seem to have forgotten... God's sufficiency, that everything that God has provided for them was enough to take care of them. They seem to have forgotten about this, and so they start griping and complaining to Moses. Now, they were led by these men, and some of them you've probably heard of, and once we start going through this, I'm I'm sure everybody's familiar with this story, but they were led by Korah, by Dathan, by Abiram, and by On. And they've got everybody reared up against Moses and Aaron now. And it wasn't that... They didn't like what was given to them to do. They didn't like that they weren't standing in Moses' place. They're telling Moses, why do you get to be the big guy? 
Why do you get to be the one telling everybody what to do? Look at all the rest of us out here. We're just as blessed as the children of Israel as you are. Why can't we be up there standing in your place? You want to be this Lord over us? We want to be up there. They wanted to be the big dogs. They wanted it all to be about them. And they, for, and they were thinking it was all about Moses. It wasn't even all about Moses. It was about God. But Moses was the one carrying it out, and they didn't like that anymore. Listen to what Moses says. Numbers chapter 16, let's begin reading in verse 8. So Moses said to Korah, now Korah was from the family of Kohath. Remember one of the three families of the tribe of Levi we talked about. Then Moses said to Korah, hear now you sons of Levi. Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the, con from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to serve him, them? And that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you. And are you seeking the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? So understanding who Korah is as part of that family of Levi that's supposed to be carrying out the tabernacle, he understands like, look, do you think this is just some little thing that you're blowing off that God has brought you into his tabernacle to take care of this? I mean, you seem to think that it's just some little side job we've given you. Do you not understand the honor that God has placed on your family to be able to come into his presence and serve him? Don't take this as some small thing that you've been given to do. Now listen to what he says to Datham and Abiram. Let's keep reading in verse 12. And Moses sent to Dathan and Abiram the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come. Not only did they not even... Listen to Moses. Moses never got a chance to talk to him and said, we ain't coming to talk to you. Listen to what they said to Moses. Is it a small thing that you've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us up, brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. So basically they're saying, it's like, hey, Moses, you say it was no small thing that God has allowed us to come in and serve him and to worship him in the tabernacle, that he's going to come down and dwell among us. You claim that that's no small thing. We claim that it was no small thing that you brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey. They're talking about Egypt. Remember, they're supposed to be going into Canaan, which is the land flowing with milk and honey. They said, uh-uh, you brought us out of that. We had it good back here, and now you bring us out here in the wilderness to die. I mean, what kind of audacity does Dathan and Abiram have? Basically spitting in the face of God, more or less. They didn't care they had been saved out of captivity, that they had been saved out of Egypt. All they cared about is they wanted to be the ones standing up there in Moses' position. They wanted the power that came with it. And now their ultimate fate, and I think this is a story that most all of us have had, have heard before, for the families of Korah and for Dathan and Abiram, Basically, God told Moses to tell all the rest of the congregation to get away from them. Get away from their tents, get away from where they live at. And what ultimately happened is the ground opened up. Them, their families, all their possessions were basically sucked down into the earth and the, the ground closed back around them. Killed every one of them. It's because what they did is they forgot about the sufficiency of what God provides for them. They didn't like it anymore. They wanted more. They didn't care what God had done for them back here. They wanted more and they wanted more and they wanted it right then and they wanted it their way. What does that teach us? What does that teach us about the way that we live our Christian lives today? 
Do we understand the sufficiency of what God's really provided for us and, and the blessings that he's given to us? Or do we constantly want more? Do we think that God hasn't done enough for us? So there's three things I want to look at tonight specifically. And, and granted, you could go on and on and on for the things that God's provided for us. But let's look at three things together. The first one I want us to look at is the sufficiency of his written word, the Bible. So everybody, hold your Bibles up. I don't do it. It's not rhetorical. Hold your Bibles up. Do we understand what this is? Do we really understand what we're holding in our hands? This is the Word of God. This is His written, breathed Word. Just like the family of Levi, of them being allowed to go into the tabernacle, for them being allowed to go and to serve God, for them to prepare the sacrifices, for them to be able to continue to keep oil in the lampstand, for them to keep the table of showbread, uh, to keep, it, to keep it stocked with everything that they're required to do, that was an honor for them. Do we understand the honor that we have by even being able to physically hold this and read it? I mean, did God have to give us instructions? Did he have to give anything to us? No. Just like he didn't have to allow the Levites the honor of coming in and serving him. But he did it. And we're told in Psalms chapter 119, verse 105, that his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God saw fit to record for us the history of us, the history of mankind, the history of his church. He, does, he, he saw fit to record his view of sin and his interaction with mankind and the way he handles sin and the way he deals with sin and the fact that he, doesn't, he, that he can't be around uncleanness, that in order for us to be in a relationship with God, it requires cleanliness and purity on our part. We wouldn't know that unless God had saw fit to record it for us so that we can read it. So do we really understand what we have in our hands? And, and I've even heard before Brother Glenn Colley. I think several of you are familiar with Brother Glenn. I've heard him mention before in sermons that he has certain rules. Now, this is just him, granted. I mean, it's a conviction of his own. He doesn't bind anybody else. But there are certain things he does with his Bible. And it's all based on this fact that he understands what this is. He said his Bible is never put in the floor. Never, for any reason. He's not going to put the Word of God in the floor. Even when you're sitting in church, and I do this all the time. Most of the time, I'll sit my Bible in the floor in front of the pew, in front of me, and when I need it, I'll pick it back up. Never puts it in the, on the ground. He will never set anything on top of it. He's not going to set something else on top of his Bible, almost like it's to hold something else up like that. No, the Bible will be on top. And so it's, it's getting in this mindset of understanding what we really have. You know, through, its, through his word, we understand that we were created in the image of deity. Now, for any of you who were at McCoinsville this past week with Brother Brant, Stubblefield was there, and I understand they were live streaming the services on the Internet, so several had listened to it. He hit on this point a lot on Friday. I think it was Friday night. It may have been Tuesday night. I don't remember. One of the nights is we're made in the image of deity. Do we grasp really even what that means? Now, without this written word, we wouldn't know that. But the animals were not made that way. We were. Man was made that way. God loves us that much. He wants us that much to be part of him. But again, it all goes back to the Bible. If we don't have this, we wouldn't know it. Turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I, I want us to read this together. And what I, what I want to get at here is how do we know that everything that we need for life has actually been given to us. How do we know that maybe God hasn't only given us half of it and the other, the other half of what we need 
is still hidden from us. And so we're really just kind of up for chance about whether or not we can carry out his will. How do we know that? Now, this passage we're going to read, most of us may be able to say this by heart. But I think because of that, sometimes we just kind of skim over it a little bit. And we don't really stop to pay attention to the words and what it's saying. So let's pay attention to these for a second and, and look at the words that, that Paul's saying to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's begin reading in verse 14. It says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know we have everything. What God has provided to us is sufficient. We don't need anything else. We don't need some prophet now to come and tell us some other revelation that God hasn't already put in the Bible. God is not, is not speaking to us that way anymore. We know that everything we have is right here. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus himself even said this, that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. If we understand what this really is, we're going to honor it. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we know it. Because everything that pertains to life and godliness is right here. All right, so that's the first thing. The first sufficiency that God's provided to us is his written word. The next thing let's look at, what about his mercy and his grace? The mercy and grace that's provided by God. You know, we, we read about in Scripture the, the wrath of God, whether it was through the destruction of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, whether it was through Sodom and Gomorrah, whether it was through the destruction of basically the entire earth and all mankind through the flood. We read about these things, and we should understand the seriousness of it. I mean, do, do we really understand the wrath that could be poured out by God? I mean, Jeremiah tells us in chapter 32, verse 17, that everything, the heavens and earth, everything was created by God's outstretched hand, that there's nothing that is too complicated for him. There's nothing that's too hard for him to do. We have to understand what that really means. When God wants to carry out his wrath, he's got every ability to do that whenever he wants to, honestly. And we don't read these things to really scare us. It's not really the intent of it, but there should be a healthy fear of God and his power. Because if we don't understand that, we're not going to have a respect for God and his power. I mean, even Nahum, the prophet Nahum tells us in Nahum chapter 1, it says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the, the wicked. And even in Matthew chapter 13, Christ himself talks about, in the parable of the tares, that the wicked will be cast out and burned in the furnace. There is wrath coming from God. And again, back to having the sufficiency of the word, we know that because he told us in the Bible. But the sufficiency that God provides through his grace and through his mercy, if we don't understand and accept that sufficiency from him, what hope do we have? Because his wrath is coming on the wicked. And haven't we all sinned? And the Bible tells us that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
So we fall into that category, the wicked, if it wasn't for God's grace and mercy. And if those things are not sufficient, then we have no hope. Now, most people, when, when you talk about grace and mercy, the way that they define those things, and it's been kind of the, the common way to define them, I guess, is mercy is not getting something that you do deserve, and grace is getting something that you don't deserve. And I think most people have probably heard it described that way. I mean, God has so many rules that he had under the old law about cleanliness, the things that we talked about that, that's in Leviticus, about going through and cleansing themselves through sacrifices or making sure they stay outside the, the, the city and the encampment so that they stay away from everybody else and keep them from getting unclean. We know that, like I said, everybody has fallen short, but in Lamentations chapter 3, listen to what he says in verse 22. He said, "...through the Lord's mercies were not consumed." All the wicked are, are going to be consumed. They're going to be cast into this furnace. But it's because of God's mercy that we're not going to be consumed. Because his compassions never fail, they're new every morning, and great is his faithfulness. We have to understand that the mercy and grace that God shows to us, it, it's there to help us avoid, avoid that eternal punishment. The wrath that is to come. The wrath that is going to come with the judgment. And while we don't deserve it, He's offering it to us. We don't deserve salvation. None of us do. But that's the mercy that he's given to us. But then not only that, the grace follows up with basically the blessings we get to enjoy in our life. We don't deserve these blessings, but he's going to give it to us anyways because he loves us that much. Again, like the children of Israel, he wants to be around his people. And he wants his people to be in a relationship with him. Same thing for his church today. That it's the daily blessings we enjoy with that ultimate grace exemplified in Christ himself coming and dying for us. Again, we didn't deserve that. But God did it for us anyways. That's grace he teaches us. You know, and, and another passage that I think many of us have probably heard, Paul himself, when he's looking in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that he talks about this thorn in the flesh that he has and that he wants this thorn in the flesh to be removed you know, there's been a lot of debate over the years about what this thorn in the flesh really is, and honestly, nobody knows. You, you'll hear all kinds of things. Maybe it was a speech impediment. Maybe it was a handicap, um, a physical disability that he had, and you, you'll have all kinds of people claim things. Nobody knows, so take it for what it's worth, but who knows what this, what this thorn in the flesh was that Paul had to deal with, and maybe it wasn't even anything physical. Maybe it was just something in his environment that he was around, but what did God tell him? So he's not removing that thorn in the flesh. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. You have my grace. You don't need all this other stuff. Again, just like Korah and Dathan and Abiram and on, they had all this stuff that God had given to them, but it wasn't good enough for them. And because of that, they were ultimately destroyed, and they fell victim to the wrath of God. All right, one more thing I want us to look at. So we've looked at the, the sufficiency of his word. We have everything we need. We, we've looked at the sufficiency of what his mercy and grace really does for us. But what about Christ? What about the sufficiency of the Son of God himself? You know, we, we talked about in the old law. The, there was constant sacrifices, all these things that they had to do, these rituals and traditions and one thing after another and over and over and over. But why did they have to do that stuff over and over? It's because it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't good enough. It, it was what worked at the time, but if those things really truly made them clean, they wouldn't have to do it again. 
Let's go together to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And while you're turning there, we're going to start reading in verse 1. But understand that all throughout history, and we read about in the Old Testament, and same thing in the New Testament, for all sin, God has always commanded a blood sacrifice of some type. All right? And so again, it was the blood of bulls and goats and other things under the old law that he commanded, but then culminated in the blood of his son, Jesus the Christ. So let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away the sins. Like I said, if those sins under the old law had been sufficient, they wouldn't have had to just keep doing them over and over and over. So why do you think it is that today we don't have to continue to do those sacrifices over and over? There's a reason for that. Let's keep reading in verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Verse 8, Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. So what Christ did is he came and he took all those previous sacrifices, the requirements for them away. Because that's not what God desired. That's not what he longed after. What he longed after, and this is what verse 9 tells us, is that he established the second one. The second one was is that one body, that one sacrifice for all time that does away with the need for anything else. It's because the death and the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. There is no more need for sacrifice. That one sacrifice for all time will continue to cleanse us and will continue to allow us to be in that relationship with God, which is the things that the children of Israel had to do over and over and over again, day after day, year after year for their entire lives if they wanted to continue to live in the presence of God. You know, the sacrifice of Christ is everything. And without that sacrifice, what hope do we have? I mean, we can continue to make these, these sacrifices with, with bulls and goats, I guess. But it said here that that's not what God wanted, and that was not sufficient. So everything we have is back to Christ. I mean, we, we've studied before um, in sermons that we've done here, Mark chapter 4 and 5, where it talks about the power that Christ really had, that he had the power to control nature when he made the winds and the waves be still. When the, when the boat was getting tossed. He had the power to control demons when he cast out the demons into the swine and they ran over the, the cliff. He had the power over sickness that he healed the woman and ultimately had power over death itself. That sacrifice, you want to talk about the spotless lamb that they were supposed to provide sacrifice of pure animals in the Old Testament, something with no blemish at all. They didn't really exist. They could try the best they had with it. But the one true sacrifice that really met that qualification was Christ himself. And the real reason for that was he was God in the flesh. 
There was no sin in him. There was no blemish in him. There was no imperfection or impurity. Christ was the sufficient sacrifice that we're ever going to need. We don't need anything else. And there's no care of this world, nothing that goes on that could ever improve what we have, the situation that we're in. And so by us falling back into the same mindset that they had in the children of Israel, by that faction that rose up in Numbers chapter 16 with Korah and Dathan and Abiram and On, where they said, you know what? We had it good. We don't care that you've brought us out and done all this other stuff. We want more. What you're doing for us right now is not good enough. We don't have the ability to say that. They shouldn't have had the ability to say that, and they were wrong in what they said, and because of that, they lost their lives for it. May we never fall into this mindset of thinking that, God, this isn't good enough. Just like they complained that when Dathan and Byron were talking to Moses, and they said, and you claim it's no, no small thing of what God allows us to do? Well, we claim that it's no small thing that you've brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey. Through our actions, are we saying to God, God, it's no small thing that you've put me in this kind of a health condition. It's no small thing that I have financial difficulties in my life. It's no small thing that I have this boss that is so hard on me, or I'm in a family relationship that is just strained constantly. Is what we have not sufficient? Through his written word, through the grace and mercy that God provides to us, and then providing his own son so that we can remain clean in a relationship with God, that's sufficient. Nothing else that we want and nothing else that we long for on this earth is necessary. Everything we have today has been provided for us. So, so we've looked at the sufficiency of, like we said, the Bible itself, his grace and mercy towards us, and now the sacrifice of Christ. And like I said, you could go on and on with more and more things that God's provided for us that's sufficient for everything we need. You know, there's one more thing that God's actually done for us. In Job chapter 1, Satan actually accused God of something. Satan accused God of putting this hedge around Job. He said, look, well, no wonder you've got Job that's going to follow you constantly and he's never going to talk bad about you or turn his back on you. I mean, you've got a hedge around him. I can't touch him. Well, Job, Satan was ultimately able to attack Job's family. He was able to attack his health. He was able to attack, to attack his, his fortune, everything that he had. But you know what? God never removed that hedge around Job. Satan was not allowed to touch Job himself. He was not able to take his life. He was not able to take his soul from him. We talked about that this morning. Only Job could have given that up. God provided that hedge of protection around him. The problem we get into at times, though, is we have this hedge of protection around us as well, but it's like we want to trim the hedges. We want to get them down just low enough that we can see over the top of them so we can see this world of sin that goes on around us. It's just like, I just want to see it. I want to touch it sometimes. I want to see what it's like. And sometimes we'll even trim those hedges far enough that we can actually step over them. I just want to put my toe in the water. I just want to experience it for a few minutes. And ultimately, we, we leave this protection. But it's not that God ever removed the hedge from us. That hedge of protection was always there. We left it. We got out of it. What he provided was sufficient for us, and we said it wasn't good enough. And we walk away from it. May we never walk away from that hedge of protection that God provides for us. And so I ask tonight, if, if you have a need in your life, that maybe you feel like you've left that hedge of protection, that you feel like you've gotten outside of that and, and you've got out into the world. 
that you're starting to question the sufficiency of what God has actually provided for us. Make it right. Make the changes necessary in your life to be able to bring, bring yourself back to where God wants you to be. And, and if you need the help of this church, I promise you this congregation is, is more than happy to work with you, to be a shoulder that you need to lean on at times, maybe somebody to prop you up. God did not put us on this earth to go through this life by ourselves. There's a reason in his wisdom was to create a church and a family relationship like he did. He knew that we needed people, that we did not have the strength to go through this life on our own. We need each other, and we're here for each other. If you have a need tonight and you have sins in your life that you need prayers for, that you need help with strength, let this congregation know about it. Let us pray for you and help you. Maybe you ultimately need to become a child of his. The water is already in the baptistry tonight. You've heard everything that you need to know. Your Bi the Bible's in front of you. It's sufficient. Believe it. Repent of the sins that you have in your life. And again, confess before this congregation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And be baptized to wash those sins away. So if you have a need tonight, we ask you to come as we stand and we sing.